Well, I would invite you to turn, if you would be inclined, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible using uh, one of the ones in the seats in front of you there, there's two different volumes. So in that uh, particular volume, it's going to be either page 925 or page 984. Colossians chapter 3. And perhaps you have noticed the title of the message, Kill, Kill, Kill. Not your typical sermon title, perhaps. Um, And of course, it can be grossly misunderstood if it is taken out of context. But I think as we look to things in Colossians 3, you'll see the context and the intent of that title. And in this chapter that we're going to continue on in, Paul is working out the practical, ethical implications of the theological truths that he's been proclaiming in chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians about the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in contrast to the worthless efforts of self-made religion to try to stop the indulgence of the flesh, to try to make a person right with God on their own, in contrast to all of that, Paul is now explaining how true transformation happens in the lives of Christians, in the lives of those who have come to faith in Christ. And so we're going to focus on verses 5 through 11 in the time that we have this morning. But I want to read beginning in verse 1 just to give a little sense of the context. So let's hear now the eternal word of the living God. And I'll start in chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And thus says the Lord God and praise him for his word. Well, in the uh, days that followed the 9-11 terrorist attacks on America back in 2001, uh, then-President George W. Bush said somewhat famously with words that were likely not original to him, but he said this, among other things. He said, we don't negotiate with terrorists. We aim to put them out of business. We don't negotiate with terrorists, but we aim to put them out of business. 
And with this, he was expressing a fresh resolve and a focus in the war on terror. And he was acknowledging that the presence and the threat of bloodthirsty terrorists was real and that the only appropriate response was to put them out of business. In other words, to kill them. Now, I'm not here to analyze the political ins and outs of that statement. But rather, I draw it to your attention because I think it illustrates what Paul is exhorting in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11, about how Christians are to respond to the threats of sin. And not just sin in a general sense, but their own sin, our own sin. In other words, spiritually, this must be our constant resolve as God's people in our own war against our own sin. Beloved, don't negotiate with your sin, but rather aim to put it out of business. In other words, the the message of this passage is kill, kill, kill your own sin. And that really is the big idea, the main point, the urgent call of this text. Kill, kill, kill your own sin. Well, of course, we ask the question then, well, what exactly does that mean? And how exactly do we kill our sin? And this is what Paul explains in verses 5 through 11. And his call here involves at least three different elements. And that's what I want to draw your attention to. And that'll sort of form the framework of what we're going to look at this morning. These three different elements of the call to kill, kill, kill your own sin. Let me mention the elements, then we'll move through them one by one. But here's the first element, and I'm going to explain it this way or, or say it this way, and then I'll explain it. And it is this, raise the black flag on your sin. Raise the black flag on your sin. And I'll explain that in a moment. The second element is know your enemy. Know your enemy. And then the third element is seek and savor your Savior. Seek and savor your Savior. So those are the elements that we want to see. Raise the black flag on your sin. Second of all, know your enemy. And then third, seek and savor your Savior. So first of all, the first element, raise the black flag on your sin. What I mean by that is resolve to kill your sin. And that's what we see in verse 5 when Paul says very directly, very emphatically, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he's speaking to believers. He's speaking to God's people. He's speaking to those who have professed faith and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, where does this imagery of the black flag come from? Well, you may know that in wartime, particularly in pre-modern times of battle, raising the black flag was a signal for soldiers to kill the enemy on the spot when they encountered the enemy. In other words, the black flag meant that there was to be an aggressive, all-out attack that understood you either kill or be killed. And the black flag meant, quite literally, that there's to be no negotiating with the enemy. The black flag meant give no quarter to the enemy, take no enemies. 
No one was to be seen as a prisoner, but rather the black flag meant that a soldier must have a resolved mindset to kill the enemy on the spot. And as I said, you either kill or you be killed. And so raise the black flag. And so when Paul gives this command, which is the command which governs the entire passage, at the beginning of verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, he's commanding that you and I and every Christian raise the black flag on our sin, that we uh, kill sin on the spot when we are tempted to not negotiate with it, to not give it any quarter, to take no enemies, but rather spiritually to have a resolved mindset to kill the enemy of our sin whenever it appears. We're not to play with it. We're not to reason with it. We're not to coddle it, but we're to kill it. And as the Puritan John Owen quite famously said, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. And really, In its most simplest terms, here's the point and force of Paul's command at the beginning of verse 5. Stop sinning. Stop sinning. That's in essence what he is saying. Stop giving in to your earthly and fleshly desires. He speaks this way and with this kind of language also over in Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. And he says there that by the Spirit we are to put to death the deeds of the body. It's very strong language. Now, the context and the motivation, and here's what's so vitally important, the context and the motivation for killing our sin is found in the little word, therefore, that we find in the early part of verse 5. Paul's therefore means in view of what I've just been saying, kill your sin. This is the conclusion. This is a logical response to what he's just been saying. And what he's just been saying is in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3, which I just read and which is the passage that we looked at last week. And what Paul says there to believers is that because of our eternal identity, and our future destiny in Jesus, we're to live a Christ-centered life. He says there in verses 1 to 4 that we're to set, or we're to seek and we're to set our minds on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We're to live a life centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, if we've come to faith in the Lord Jesus, we've died with him in a spiritual sense, we've been raised with him, we have a new identity, we have a new destiny in Christ, and thus now as his people, we are to seek and to set our minds on him. We are to walk with Jesus, as Paul exhorts over in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. We are to live a Christ-centered life. And so on the basis of that, which Paul is amplifying in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3, in verse 5, he's just beginning to get more specific then about what this Christ-centered life is to look like, how it fleshes out in the day-to-day realities of our lives. And it begins with putting to death all that is not of Christ in our lives, all that is earthly, Again, to raise the black flag on our sin and to be killing it. 
We're to put it away, as Paul will go on to say down there in verse 8. And again, we're to stop sinning. Now, a little bit later, down in verse 12, in the passage that Lord willing will look at next week, Paul's going to get specific about what it is we're to put on what it is we are to live to. If we're to put to death our sin, he also wants us to understand what we are to live to in Christ and with Christ. And so he's giving us this imagery and this picture of what it is we're to put off, what it is we're to put on. And friends, this is really the whole picture of of what we call theologically sanctification, becoming more like Christ, being made more holy in our day-to-day experience. It involves this dynamic of both putting off and killing sin and putting on and living to the righteousness of Christ. For a believer, established, secure, and assured of who we are in Christ, of our union with Christ, and of the riches of our identity and our destiny in Christ, this is how we grow. This is how we mature. It's an ongoing, lifelong process of putting off and putting on, of killing sin, of living to righteousness. And it begins again with this resolve to kill your sin, to raise the black flag on your sin. Now, there's so many different ways that we can think about this and illustrate this. Uh, Many of you, perhaps, in your own life have made radical changes in your food diet because you are facing health issues. And you've come to learn that your habits and patterns of eating were actually deadly and destructive. And you've come to learn that if you didn't radically change, then you're going to face big trouble in your health. And how much more, if that's true in the way that we can respond to physical danger and physical considerations of our lives to make radical changes, that's the point that Paul's saying. We need to deal purposefully, radically, aggressively with our own sin. And isn't it true, too often we just simply enjoy our sin too much. I know I'm easily tempted that way, and I can become complacent, and I can become lazy, and I can become casual in my fight against sin. But again, Paul is saying, God is saying through Paul, don't coddle your sin, don't play with it, don't negotiate with it. God says, kill it. Kill it. Raise the black flag on your sin. I don't know how it may be for you, but whenever I encounter a spider in my house or around my house, usually it's a black widow spider. Whenever I encounter a spider, my immediate instantaneous reaction is to kill that sucker. I don't want that spider anywhere near me, near my home, near my family, anything. I'm instantly in a kill, kill, kill mode. And again, brothers and sisters, if we do this in that kind of a way, how much more ought we to see the threat and the danger of the reality of our own inclinations towards sin, of that which is earthly within us? Maybe you remember the radical and shocking counsel that Jesus gives to this effect in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, when he says, and specifically concerning sins of sexual lust, he says in verse 29 of Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, Jesus is using hyperbole here. And we have to ask the question, is it our eye fundamentally that causes us to sin? Is it our hand that fundamentally causes us to sin? No, it's our heart. And that becomes clear even in the context of what Jesus is saying there in Matthew 5, many other places in Scripture. But Jesus is using hyperbole to illustrate and to emphasize that we must deal aggressively, radically with our sin. And in essence, he's saying what Paul is saying, what God is saying through Paul in Colossians 3, verse 5. Raise the black flag. Take no enemies. Don't negotiate. Well, if you're going to kill your sin, how is it that you do it? You need to know something of the nature of your sin. You need to know your enemy. And so this leads to the second element of Paul's call that we see where he gets very specific in the rest of verse 5 uh, all the way down really through verse 11. And so this is the second element of God's call for us to kill our sin. It's to know your enemy. And even more specifically, to understand the nature of your sin. And so let me just read again what Paul says. He says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? And then he gets specific to clarify exactly what he means. Such things as sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. He's saying, you used to be an unbeliever. You used to be enslaved to these matters. You used to walk in these things, but that's not the case anymore. So he says in verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Notice the put off and put on priorities that I mentioned earlier. He goes on to say, uh, this new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now there's so much more here to speak of that I'm just not going to be able to unpack everything here. But certainly it's important to note that all that Paul speaks of in this list of vices that he describes uh, isn't exhaustive. In other words, there are many other types of sins that he could identify. And in many other places in his letters, he does identify a lot of different other kinds of sins. But through all that Paul says here, God is shining the spotlight on what the nature and what the ultimate root of all sin is. And it especially is focused at the end of verse 5 when Paul describes it as evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, in that context, he's connecting those things particularly with sexual immorality and impurity and all the different manifestations of that. But it really carries over to, to any sense of sin is most fundamentally a fruit of evil desires, and of covetousness, and of ultimately idolatry, false worship, 
That's what sin fundamentally is. It's the very heart of sin is idolatry. Finding pleasure, finding refuge, finding delight in anything other than the living God of the universe and of all that he has revealed himself to be through his word. So all sin is ultimately idolatry. And it's bound up with evil desires, with covetousness. It's the failure to worship God alone with our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. It's the failure to find refuge in God alone, to find our all in all in Christ who is all and in all. And so we understand and can see that every outworking of sin, every manifestation of sin ultimately expresses a failure to be content and submissive to God and to God alone. In other words, all of our sin, in the myriads of ways in which it can be manifest, is ultimately us saying to God, you're not good, you're not great, you're not worthy, and you're not enough for me. And think all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the account that we are given of mankind's first sin when Eve was deceived by the serpent. Uh, Satan ultimately was deceiving her and she chose to look upon the fruit that God had forbidden and she reasoned to herself that it was good. And ultimately that's what sin is. It's our own definition, our own, our own designation of what is good, independent of God who alone is good. That's the heart of what sin is. It can be expressed in vile, heinous, egregious kinds of ways. It can also be expressed in very proper, self-righteous, moralistic kinds of ways. God knows the heart, but it's fundamentally saying, God, you're not good, you're not great, you're not worthy, I don't need you. You're not enough for me. And this is why our sin is so sinful, because it's supplanting the right worship and enjoyment of God himself. That's what makes sin sin, is that it's against God. You know, back when King David, you've read of him, maybe heard of him in the Old Testament, uh, perhaps Israel's greatest king in many ways, and yet a very, very, very flawed man. And later in life, he committed bold-faced adultery. And then he conspired to have the husband of the woman that he committed adultery with murdered. And then he lived in willful, ongoing deception for a lengthy period of time. Adultery, murder, deception. But when God finally confronts him through the prophet Nathan, and you can read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, it's interesting that God does not deny or gloss over these activities of sin that David had done. But the heart of God's indictment against David is expressed in verse 9 of chapter 12 when he says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? to do what is evil in his sight. You see, David sinned against Bathsheba, the woman he committed adultery with. He, he sinned against her husband. He sinned against the whole nation of Israel. He's the king of Israel at the time. But at its core, 
God said, you've sinned against me. You've despised my word. You've done what is evil in my sight. And you see, this is what makes sin, sin. Despising what is, despising God's word and, de- and doing what is evil in his sight. There's a wonderful little volume called The Valley of Vision. Some of you are familiar with that. It's a collection of uh, prayers from Puritan writers. It's rich, it's helpful, it's very, very wonderful, The Valley of Vision. Uh, One of those prayers, a prayer called Humiliation, includes this petition. It says this, Let me never forget that the heinousness of sin is not so much in the nature of the sin as in the greatness of the one sinned against. That's it. That's the heart of sin. What makes our sin sin is that it's against God. And we're fundamentally saying, God, I don't need you. I'll choose good on my own. That's the heart of sin. So through what Paul says in Colossians 3 and the portion that we're looking at, he wants us to understand the nature of our sin so that we don't deal with it superficially. So that we don't minimize our sin, so that we don't justify our sin, and so that we don't just deal with the symptoms of our sin, but that we deal with the root of our sin. Covetousness, idolatry, that's fundamentally what it is. And so all of those different specific descriptors that Paul gives in that section, and we could certainly take a lot of time to unpack each one of those, But they're indicating this root, this heart that says, God, you're not enough. And so we don't want to deal with sin superficially. We don't want to deal with just the symptoms. If we're going to kill sin, if we're going to destroy it in our lives, we have to know the nature of it and go down to the core, to our desires, to our affections, to ultimately our worship. Now, by the way, I might mention that uh, with what Paul says in verses 10 and 11 about our new self in Christ being renewed in the image of its creator and thus all earthly distinctions and categories evaporating because Christ is all and in all and all those different categories that he mentions there in verse 10 and 11, all of this implies that part of the nature of sin, part of the sin which we have to kill is the wicked and hateful division that can be present when we idolize these earthly distinctions and categories more than worshiping Christ. In other words, we need to recognize and kill our sins of ethnic, religious, political, economic, and social pride and prejudice that we can so easily be given to. We need to kill those as much as every other sin in our hearts. It's kind of a funny example of that maybe. Yesterday morning, I had the privilege of speaking at a men's breakfast at another church in town. And when I arrived, um, there was, I don't know, 40 or 50 uh, men that were there. And it was a little cool in the morning, so I'm wearing a little windbreaker that had on it the insignia of the interlocking O and U. Now, of course, you know that is the insignia of the greatest college football Uh, program in all of history, uh, the Oklahoma Sooners, my alma mater and where I was born and raised. And and it was a little bit of a calculated decision on my part to wear that in there. But sure enough, I thought there would probably be a lot of, you know, fans from teams in Southern California and that kind of thing. 
But I had no more been there than just a couple of minutes, and one guy comes up to me, and he goes, oh, no. He goes, I, I can't even listen to you today. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, no, who's he a fan of? And he says, I'm a University of Texas fan. And, of course, if you know anything at all about college football, Texas, Oklahoma, big, big rivalry. I can't believe that anybody would like burnt orange, but that's a whole other matter. But... I, you know, there was a genuine sense of, I'm thinking, well, I don't think I could talk to you either. Um, so I didn't think that. But we kind of laughed about it. But there is kind of that sense. There's kind of an impulse of like, oh, okay. And, and um, if that can happen with college football teams or other sports teams, then a lot of you know those kinds of dynamics. But isn't it true that we, we can grab on to these earthly distinctions, these earthly uh, divisions and categories And Paul's implicitly saying with what he says there in verse 10 and 11, make sure that as you're killing sin, you don't let there be any of these kinds of earthly divisions in your mind between you and even other believers. Be on guard against that, that we not let those things hinder that. So we're to be killing sin. We're to have a radical orientation. We're to raise the black flag on our sin. We're to understand the nature of sin, that it's fundamentally about uh, idolatry in our hearts. And part of an implication from that, by the way, means that part of our killing sin is as we are convicted of sin and confess our sin before the Lord to make sure we're going to the heart of the issue. Make sure we're going to the heart of the issue, not just dealing with symptoms or dealing with it superficially, but going to the heart. If you want encouragement in that way, look at David's confession in Psalm 51. Learn from David's confession in Psalm 51. You could also go to Psalm 32, where he reflects upon his confessing of his sin before the Lord. Those passages, among many, are very instructive in making sure we're not just glossing over sin in a superficial way. Well, friends, I would say, too, if you've not repented from your sin in a a comprehensive way in trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, I would say don't miss what Paul says there in verse 3. If you're walking in those things, if you're not trusting Christ, you're under the wrath of God. And it's just a matter of time before that judgment from God, his just judgment, is fully and finally executed. But even today, God calls you to come to him, to know his forgiveness, to know his love, to know his mercy, to know the riches of all of the blessings. He wants to forgive you. And he's given the Lord Jesus Christ as the means of your forgiveness who paid the penalty for your sin if you would trust him and come to him. And so you can know full forgiveness. So don't miss the significance of that. You're either in Christ or you're either under God's wrath. And he wants you to be saved. So flee to Christ. Cry out to him even where you're seated and say, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Well, this leads to the third element that we see in the passage. Seek and savor your Savior. Not only raise the black flag on your sin, not only know your enemy and understand the nature of your sin, but seek and savor your Savior. And so with what Paul says here at the end of verse 11, when he says, but Christ is all and in all, he's circling back in his thoughts to the riches that he's expressed in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3. 
And those riches of what he expresses in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3 are all circling back and encompassing all of the truths that he's spoken of in chapters 1 and 2 about the supremacy and the sufficiency of all of God's provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's not a throwaway statement when he says there at the end of verse 11 um, that Christ is all and in all. It's uppermost in Paul's thoughts that he wants believers to be looking to all of God's provision in Christ. Now remember some of the glories that he's declared earlier in chapters 1 and 2. For instance, in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, this hymn, this anthem of the supremacy, sufficiency of Christ... Listen to what he says, and he's speaking of Christ, verse 15 of chapter 1. He says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's the hope, that's the reality, that's the glory, that's the joy, that's the life for everyone who is in Christ. He is the all-sufficient and supreme creator. He is the all-sufficient and supreme head of the church who through his own blood, the blood of the cross, has reconciled us, has provided the means for us to be reconciled to God. Think about what Paul says. I mentioned it earlier, but in chapter 2, Verses 6 and 7, this passage that's really the epicenter of the whole letter where Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, the point of all of this, in, in, in this point of what Paul is saying, that Christ is all and in all, he's the one who erases and evaporates all earthly distinctions and divisions, and he's the one that we're to be looking at. The significance of this is this. In our fight with sin, in our uh, purposes in Christ by his spirit to raise the black flag on our sin and to kill our sin, We're not to be obsessed with our sin, but we're to be obsessed with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to see our sin, own our sin, be sobered by our sin, be grieved by our sin, but to seek and to savor and to literally be obsessed with all of God's provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you know what Paul says in Romans chapter 5 when he says at the end of all that he's saying there in that great chapter, which is part of the whole great book that he's revealing about God's righteousness in Christ and the blessings of his righteousness in Christ. He says towards the end of chapter 5 where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Beloved, that's the testimony. That's That's the legacy for every single one of us in Christ. Yes, sin abounds, but Christ abounds all the more. And so we're to seek him and to set our minds on him 
to savor him, to delight in him who is faithful and who is our all-sufficient Savior. And so this comes back again to knowing, to savoring, to walking in our eternal identity in Christ and in our future destiny in Christ. Because for everyone who is in Christ, we've been crucified with him. We've been raised with him. And being assured of and confident in our standing in Christ is what fuels and what motivates our fight against sin. Because we know, as Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no guilt. There's no condemnation. One writer says this about that reality and the importance of seeing and savoring, seeking the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the salvation that he's given. He observes this, listen, quote, No sin can be crucified either in the heart or life unless it, at fir- unless it first be pardoned in the conscience because there will be want of faith to receive the strength of Jesus by whom alone it can be crucified. He says, if it be not mortified, which means crucified, killed, if it be not mortified in its guilt, it cannot be subdued in its power, end quote. The point that he's making is that if you and I are trying to kill sin, but we're bound up with a guilty conscience that can never get beyond that guilt, we're going to lose the fight. We're going to lose the battle. But it's understanding that in Christ, through Christ, with Christ, in union with Christ, our guilt has been removed. Our conscience has been cleansed. And yes, even as believers, even as we still sin, as we fight sin, as we battle it daily, and we will until the day that we die, we can confess and we can know that he has forgiven. They know that he cleanses. We can lay hold of promises like we heard earlier in the service from 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, and many others. What riches God has given and done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. In him, we've been counted righteous in the righteousness of Christ. He's eternally delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of all of our sins. Paul speaks of that in Colossians 1. What blessings, what life, what hope we have through our union with Christ by faith. And so we ought always to keep seeking and savoring our mighty and faithful Savior. And in that hope of him, to then be raising the black flag on our sin and making sure we understand the nature of our sin. So, beloved, this is the call to kill, kill, kill your sin because of all that Christ is and because of all that God has done in Christ. I'll just close with this. Maybe you've experienced driving down the highway and hitting, at least this happens in America, I don't know if they have these in Germany or elsewhere, uh, but driving down a highway and hitting what are called rumble strips. Rumble strips are built-in bumps on the shoulder of highways, and they're built in there, and they provide a jolting and an uncomfortable warning to wake up and to stay alert and to drive carefully. And that's what they're there for. And driving over rumble strips, if you ever have, is not generally a pleasant thing. You want to get off of them as soon as you can. 
but it is a built-in warning system that is intended to help us as drivers to stay alive and alert and, and aware as we're driving. I think of that because the passage today is really sort of a spiritual rumble strip passage, if you will. It's a warning. It's a strong warning. It's a sobering warning. Maybe it's jolting and maybe it's uncomfortable for us to hear, but it's intended to give us life. It's intended to keep us safe. It's intended to help us stay alert spiritually and to walk carefully, to not be lazy, to not be complacent, to not be casual with sin, but to recognize its danger and to kill and kill and kill our sin. And very practically, this is why we pray seeking the Lord's help. This is why we spend time in His Word, reading His Word, meditating on His Word, listening to His Word, read and preached. And and this is why God calls us to live together in the life of a local church. Because we're all in this battle. We're all helping one another to pray for one another, encourage one another, come alongside and confront one another when we need to. Because we're all in this fight together. So there's a lot for us to consider here, isn't there? Well, next week, we're going to move into the the positive focus of this. This is kind of the negative angle of the things we need to kill, of the things we need to put off. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look into verses 12 to 17 and the riches and the wealth and the sweetness and the beauty and the goodness of all that we are to be putting on in Christ. And praise God, we see so many evidences of that among us as well. But may God continue to multiply that for his glory and for the blessing of others. So until then, let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth, for its power. Uh, We thank you for life, that you reveal your love, that you, you shed your light on the reality of who you are and of all you've given in Christ that helps us see the reality of who we are and how much we need the Lord Jesus. And all of this to the end, that we might share your very life, that we might be uh, delivered from darkness and and from the death of sin, uh, to know the riches of your flourishing eternal life in Christ. Father, for all of us who are believers, please help us to ever seek and savor the Lord Jesus more and more. And in so doing, to be ever raising the black flag on our own sin and and knowing the nature of sin and dealing with it at the very root. And Father, if there are any who don't know you, who are under your wrath even now, oh God, may you awaken them. May they be convicted. May they feel the weight of your judgment, impending judgment, that they might flee to Christ so that they might know the, the riches of your rest and of your mercy and of your grace that you so freely offer in Christ. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the time to be together today. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.